I don't know about you, but that song always makes me teary-eyed. I'm verklempt. Here, let's pray. Father, excuse me. Father, we uh, are just so grateful that you have brought us together today to worship you. And we pray that you would also give us the wisdom and understanding as we continue to look into your word. And Father, also we pray just for uh, all those families that were affected by that uh, just horrendous accident with the uh, hockey team. We pray that you would bring comfort to all of them that are involved at this time. Amen. So I don't know about you, but I'm very excited, besides the tears, I mean, (laughs) I'm really excited because we are going to be looking at the Christian's favorite topic today. That is Jesus and the God and the plan of salvation, or God's plan for salvation, I should say. And you know, this is a topic that it should never become like a light thing for us. You know, kind of like how it's lost its oomph. I find times we get so used to the, to the thought of salvation that we don't really put it at the forefront of our minds. So if for some reason it's not your favorite topic, then my hope and prayer is that by the end of today, that it would be. That God would speak to your heart. Or at the very least, that he would cause you to make the need of salvation the number one priority in your life. Because ultimately, there's nothing of greater importance, correct? Okay. So now, as we study the subject of uh, salvation, it becomes apparent that uh, we all need to have the same foundation uh, for our primary understanding. Otherwise, if we don't have this, the, the, the reason for Jesus and God's plan of salvation, it won't make much sense. And that's why we're going to be looking at the book of beginnings today. So... For our foundation, we're going to be looking at Genesis. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then it goes on to describe how he had created everything. And then he also created man. And then God told Adam, Adam, I'm going to create for you the perfect partner, and I'll even let you name her. And he said, the only thing is, I'm going to need one of your ribs. And Adam says, whoa, man. So then God created a woman. I've been waiting two years to say that one. (laughs) You know, it's been well said that if you don't believe the first chapter of Genesis is a factual report, then you're going to have difficulty believing the rest of the Bible. Because if you don't believe that God, in his infinite wisdom and infinite power, he decided to create everything in six days, then why would we believe that Jonah was in the belly of a whale? Why would we believe that God split the Red Sea so that Israel could walk through as if it was dry dry ground? Why would we believe that an axe head can float on water? Or why would I believe that three men were thrown into the midst of a fiery furnace and then came out and they were unscathed? They didn't even have the smell of smoke on them. 
Why would I believe that a mule could talk? And if I can't believe that, why would I believe that God dwelt among men, died, and then three days later rose again? So you see, if we don't have the belief in Genesis 1 that it really happened, then we have a faulty foundation. Otherwise, we would just be uh, following cunningly devised fables like Peter wrote about. And then in verse 31 of that same chapter, the Bible says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Very good as in everything was perfect. Imagine what it would be like to be surrounded by a perfect world as we look out the window and see snow. Imagine a perfect life. A life without sin, a life without disease, without sorrow, without death. And this perfect world was inhabited by the perfect man. And this man was righteous in the sight of God. And the Lord, he gave him dominion over the entire earth. The only requirement was that he was not supposed to eat the fruit of a certain tree. It's like... Hey, Adam, I created you, and I love you. I've given you everything that you see. And what you can do to demonstrate that you love me above everything else is obey this one command. You see that tree there, Adam? Just don't touch, don't eat the fruit from that tree. Don't eat the fruit from that tree, Adam. That one right there, that's the only one. Everything else, you have it. You know, we can't kid ourselves here. I think we all would have done the same thing Adam would have done. I remember when I was a kid, I was just kind of like bragging. It's like, you know what? If I would have been him, I would have known better. I would have listened to God. I would have never touched that fruit. Dad didn't even realize I was just so full of pride. Isn't that one of the problems? There was pride there? Yeah. I was just so full of pride thinking I would have never, never <clears throat> done that. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you that you should not eat? Then, he said, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. You know, people have pondered over and over, what was the first sin that Adam and Eve had done? Was it when they ate the fruit? Was it before that? Was it uh, pride because they wanted to be as smart as God? Was it unbelief because they didn't take God at his word? Was it uh, disobedience because they went against a direct command from God? Maybe it was lust. You know, because in First John it refers to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And when he was talking about that, he was actually referring back to this exact thing here. You know, we could probably all agree that 
All of those things were actually present when they did sin. But they were actually just the evidence of something that had already taken place in their heart. Jesus summed it up perfectly in Matthew 22 when he was asked by a lawyer. He says, what's the great commandment? And Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And I think it's safe to say that if Adam and Eve would have loved God in this threefold way, they wouldn't have disobeyed God. They wouldn't have been lifted with pride and so on. And whenever sin is present, there's always a sequence of events which accompany it. It's like, you know, when you get into trouble, you're going to cover it up with a lie. And then it just gets worse and worse from there. And then there's the repercussions of that sin. I remember this one time when I was in grade school, I wanted to be a, uh, a greaser for Halloween. If you don't know what a greaser is, okay, imagine a black leather jacket with your collar flipped up. And then you have jeans with the cuffs rolled up on the bottom. That's not actually a picture of me. That's just a semblance of me. And then you have your hair slicked back. Like in the movie Grease. The problem was that we didn't have hair cream. You can't be much of a greaser without hair cream. So then my sisters talked me into allowing them to use Vaseline in my hair. And boy, did I look slick. I was the greasiest greaser there was. You know, but after the candy haul was done and it was time to get home and clean up, wouldn't you know it, Vaseline doesn't just wash out of your hair like that. I must have gone through an entire bottle of shampoo. It didn't come out. And I was desperately trying to clean this out before my parents would see it. And for the life of me, it wouldn't come out. So I did the next thing. I thought I was going to be super clever. I grabbed the first thing that I found in the closet. And it just so happens that it was a styrofoam barbershop quartet hat. I didn't grab the baseball cap. I grabbed the quartet hat. And I put it on thinking, you know what? I'm going to hide myself until I figure out how to fix this problem. Well, my parents arrived and straight away they could see the greasy mess coming out from underneath the hat. And sure enough, they asked, so what happened? And as my brain's going a million miles a minute and without even batting an eye, I point to my sisters. <laughs> you know, as silly as it may sound, I was terrified. I thought my life was going to be stuck with me having this greasy hair for the rest of my life. You probably can't relate to that, though, can you? You know, we just read about this transition of a perfect and an upright man into the fallen state of sin. And as difficult as it is to relate to him because we weren't there, it's this also it's this challenge to comprehend the shock and the fear that uh, Adam would have felt when this had happened. See, we're looking at this from a distance. He went from perfect to all of a sudden fallen before God. What was it like when he first felt that sting of sin and fear? He had never felt that before. What was he thinking about when he realized that he was no longer righteous in the sight of God? What was going through his mind when he realized that things were never going to be the same again and that ultimately now death would come? Remember, Adam was created to live forever. And realizing that things were going to be different from now on, it caused him to go into this frantic state. 
And they tried to hide what they had done from God. You know, see, we, have, we are fed this idea that we are so much smarter than the people were back in the day. We have this false idea that man was ignorant. You know, uh, he spoke by grunting until he finally developed some vocal cords and then finally developed a brain and then finally he developed a language. But the thing is that Adam and Eve are way more intelligent than we could ever be. But sin makes you do stupid things, right, people? doesn't matter how intelligent you are. So they covered their shame up with fig leaves. And they forgot that God knows and he sees everything. And then they hear God say, where are you? And when they finally come out and they're wearing their little fig leaf outfits, God's like, so what's going on here? See, God wasn't asking them because he didn't know what was going on. He was giving them an opportunity to just come clean. But sure enough, they began to pass the buck in order to deflect any blame. Just like me, pointing to my sisters right away. I'm the one with the hair, but I'm pointing it to my sisters. Adam is like, you know what, I'm stepping out of this. This has nothing to do with me because the woman, she's the one that gave me the fruit. And by the way, you created her, so this is between you two. I have nothing to do with this. You know? And then she's like, well, actually, it's the snake that did it. So then God just says, you know what? He lays out the consequences of their sin right before them. Now imagine what Adam and Eve must have felt. They couldn't cleanse themselves, and they couldn't clean the other person because they're both filthy with sin now. And their fig leaf clothing, that wasn't going to last. So then God had to take it upon himself and remedy the situation. He took a faultless animal. And remember that up to this point, everything was very good. Nothing had physically died yet. They had never seen death. They had never seen the shedding of blood. So this would have been a horrific act. And genetically speaking, everything was also perfect. So this animal would have been spotless. It was without blemish. So think now, when Israel was uh, told to bring their spotless lamb as a sacrifice, it was pointing back to that day before the first Adam fell thinking of that time when everything was perfect, but simultaneously it was also pointing forward to when the second Adam would return and make everything right again. And God had to shed the blood of this innocent animal in order to provide a proper covering for Adam and Eve's sin. And with that being said, though, no matter how perfect an animal is, it is not the equivalent of a man. You know, some would have you believe that you are less valuable than you truly are. They will put humans on par with animals. But contrary to what they would have you believe, humans are not just another animal. Because if you were just another animal, then God would have to accept that first animal as a perfect substitute. You realize that? If you're an animal, that first animal was a perfect substitute. But God created you in the image of, uh, of, of him. He didn't create animal in the image of God. And only a perfect and sinless man would be a suitable substitute, which could once and for all be now offered for Adam and Eve's sin. And since now that they would begin to have these descendants and their offspring would also inherit this sin, this created two problems for them. First off, 
none of their offspring would now meet the requirements because by default they were also contaminated by sin. And second, that perfect substitute now would not only have to redeem Adam and Eve, but also every descendant from there on. So as you can see, day by day, their problem was just getting worse. Have you seen those DNA testing uh, commercials where you can do the DNA test and find out what your ancestry information is? You know, people want to see how far back they can go. But if you're a Christian, you understand that we all go back to Adam. In fact, all of us are related to Adam and Noah. If you relate to anyone else between them, actually, you shouldn't be here because they all perished in the flood. Okay, but we all go back to Noah. So a while back, I took this test. I wanted to see what it would come up with, okay? You know, half of your DNA comes from a mother, half of it comes from a father, and it's a mixture. Whether you have 20 siblings, they would all have half and half. They might have a different mix of mom and dad, but it's always 50-50 split. So I knew my grandparents were from France. I had one from uh, Ireland. But beyond that, I had very limited information. So my test indicated that I was about 34% Spanish, 28% Irish, 19% French, so on. Sarah's test came back. It indicated she was 61% from Great Britain, 17% Scandinavian, 14% Dutch, and only 3% Irish. And I thought this was the absolute funniest thing because my wife and her family, they pride themselves on their Irish roots. And meanwhile, her French husband is 10 times more Irish than she is. <laughs> but the reason I bring up the DNA is because it points to our ancestors. And it proves that we are carrying a mixture of the same information that's been handed down from generation to generation ever since the time of Adam. The Bible says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So, contrary to what some believe, sin is not something that you learn. And it doesn't skip a generation every once in a while. It's hereditary. So if Adam and Eve were tainted by sin, so were their children. And that means that everyone in the world has been tainted by the same sin and corrupt nature from Adam and Eve. Case in point, we have Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, and this time his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And his desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed them. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? So there came a point in time when Cain and Abel, it was their turn to bring an offering to the Lord. And no doubt what Cain brought was probably the most beautiful arrangement that he could get in his garden. He was probably like thinking, I'm going to impress God with what I'm bringing here. I mean, Lord, just look at this wonderful assortment. 
But whether or not it was beautiful doesn't change the fact that God required the life of an, of an animal to atone for their sin. And when Cain brought his offering, he was also demonstrating that he didn't appreciate the fact that this creature, this innocent creature, had to lose its life to cover his sin. Nor did he appreciate the fact that God had done all this work in order to redeem him. You know, the sacrifice was a reminder of where they had come from, but it was also a display of God's righteousness. The Bible says that in the that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And then, you know, there's no life in garden produce. Besides, the Bible doesn't say that Cain was naive of the requirements. It doesn't say that his parents were delinquent either. They would have taken the time to instruct their children. They would have explained to them what had taken place in the Garden of Eden prior to them having kids. And if you spent any time with kids, or if you've ever been a kid yourself, you know that kids don't always like to listen. And they don't like all your advice. Because there's no perfect kids, only perfect grandkids, right? Right? (laughs) but we can see that the cycle of sin now it's already begun and it's repeating itself Adam chooses not to love God with all of his heart he chooses to obey Eve instead of God Cain also chooses not to love God with all of his heart and the proof is also that he is trying to do things his way instead of accepting the gift of God Adam blames God because, hey, he's created Eve. Cain blames God because God didn't accept the work of his hands. And as you keep digging, digging, you realize that that same corruption and sin is embedded in every living person. And we think that, you know what, it's not my problem. And then people are waving their little fists at God and they're angry at him, but really, he's not the enemy, we're the enemy. Cain was overtaken by pride, and the evidence was apparent when he became angry. The Bible says only by pride comes contention. So God says to him, Cain, if your intentions would have been right, there wouldn't have been an issue. He says, but your intentions were not right. So then sin lies at the door. And then God here, he's speaking of the door to Cain's heart. It's always an issue of the heart, isn't it? So here in Genesis, we have sin at the door of the heart. And you know, the flesh is just saying, here, door's wide open, come on in. And God's outside, let's close the door. No, he gives us the same report in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. But imagine how shocking it would have been for Adam to see that his son was following in his footsteps and actually going a step beyond that. It's just like, not a proud moment for dad. Remember Adam, he told his wife, you need to lie for me and say that you're my sister because I'm afraid for my life at this time. I'm thinking they're going to do some bad stuff. So they do that. And sure enough, his son commits the same sin with his own wife. You know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And all this is because of that one original sin. Talk about chaos. You know, many of us claim that we love God, but 
our sin is actually evidence that we don't love God as much as we think we love God. And this is a problem that we've inherited from Adam. And that is why we need the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Because it's not natural for us to love God. He's the one that enables us to actually love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. You know, it, it's, I found it was difficult to appreciate uh, just what was needed to clean up this mess that we're in. But just to put it into perspective, think of how complex this entire universe is. I mean, it's way beyond my understanding. The Bible describes the entire creation as the work of God's fingers. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? In comparison, it says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What an awesome thought. Think of this. The entire creation was the work of his fingers. Salvation was the work of his arm. What a comparison. In Isaiah 53, we are given further revelation of the arm of God. It says, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected above men, of, of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Again, I need to emphasize this again because I don't think we can completely appreciate the effort here without understanding that Adam and Eve and his descendants, they needed a sinless man as a substitute. And the problem was that there was no man that could ever be that perfect substitute. Because all men would be tainted again by Adam's sin. And God himself could not be the substitute because God does not have flesh and blood. Therefore, he cannot pay for the penalty of death on his behalf. So then you're thinking, so what are we going to do? We're in one messed up situation. There's nothing we could do. And that's when God does his work. When we finally realize there's nothing we can do. That's why the Bible says that in the fullness of time that God took a virgin and he placed within her room the Christ child. See, because he did that, he was free from Adam and Eve's original sin. And while Christ was 100% man, God himself dwelt within the flesh, which means he was also 100% God. So in order to fulfill the substitutionary death requirement... God took upon himself the form of a man, the man Christ Jesus. And he lived a perfect and he lived a sinless life. And he gave his life upon the cross and he shed his blood to pay for that sin debt that was owed by us. 
And then three days later, he rose again from the grave, defeating death once and for all. So that if you come to him by faith, he, you will not perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And this is that stumbling block that Paul was talking about when he wrote to the church at Corinth. He said, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wow. What a contrasting thought that is. The world thinks that Jesus dying on the cross, it doesn't make sense. It's foolish. And God is saying, actually, Jesus Christ dying on the cross is a demonstration of my power and my wisdom. And if for some reason a deep appreciation of this complex work of salvation, if it's lacking, then I pray that our time together has somewhat rekindled a passion and a desire just to further dig into God's word. But as complex as the work of salvation is, God has made it so simple for us to partake of it. He just gives it to us as a gift. We just need to receive it by faith. It's, been what, has, it's what has been described as the great exchange. Jesus takes the punishment that we rightly deserve. He sheds his life's blood on our behalf. And then he pays our debt. It's cleared. But he not only pays our debt, he fills our account with his righteousness. And there was nothing we had to do. So God the Father now, he no longer considers us sinners, but he sees us as righteous. Just like the original Adam was righteous at one time. It cost him so much, but yet he gives it to us freely. Let me go back to that Vaseline story for one moment. You know, as embarrassing as it was to have all this Vaseline in my hair, it was nothing compared to what happened a few days later. Yes, it does get worse. Imagine yourself sitting in a bathtub and different friends and neighbors are taking turns trying to figure out how to wash this out of your hair. That's right. And no matter what they tried, nothing worked. All they got was these greasy hands as evidence that they were trying to get this stuff out of my hair. And in the end, I had to admit that there was nothing, nothing at all that I could do. There was only one hope that remained. So I visited the barber because I heard he had the remedy to take petroleum jelly out of your hair. Wore my little barbershop quartet hat all the way there. All I had to do was go see him. Once I arrived, he did all the work. All of it. And it seems like in no time at all, man, I was clean. I was good as new. You would have never seen any grease on my hair. People would never realize that I was the same guy. I was as good as new. You know, God is the only one that has remedy for sin. But most people mistakenly think that they can make it to heaven on their own if they just you know, try to cleanse themselves by you know, just being an upright person. Yet the Bible says, There is none righteous, no, not one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. So you have to first come to this understanding. You know what? As good as I think I am, I'm not that good compared to God. I'm not good at all compared to God. I'll never be able to fix my own sin problem. It's kind of like you're Adam and Eve with your little fig leaf outfit. That's what we looked like before God when we were trying to clean ourselves from our sin. We need to come to God with a broken and a contrite spirit and that's when we believe that Jesus willingly went to the cross for us and he shed his blood on our behalf. That's how we come to Jesus or to God. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and that you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And when you come to Jesus by faith in that substitutionary death, he promises that he will give you the gift of everlasting life. So now Adam had something to look forward to. Yes, I will die, but I'll have eternal life. And we have that same promise today. What an amazing plan of salvation. I couldn't have thought of a better one myself. So let's pray. Father, we, uh, our prayer, Lord, is that you would make us uh, just have a better uh, understanding of your glorious gospel, Lord, and let it shine through us and through our lives. Lord, I pray that we could be instruments also to bring forth the knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified to this lost and dying world. 